as we've been working through the, the life of Christ, we're trying to do it in such a way that uh, we can start with his birth at Christmas and, and finish with his death at Easter time. So we've kind of got ourselves kind of a, a timeline, a structure that we're trying to work to. Uh, we've spent the last two meetings uh, already in chapter 11, and we've got halfway through it, so we're going to have to just leave it behind now and move on into chapter 12. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and uh, he, I really want to focus on the advice that he has. Um, before we do that, though, um, we've had different bits and pieces uh, happening this week, and um, I was going to announce them earlier on, but it's very hard whenever you make an announcement and then have to sing happy birthday afterwards. It doesn't quite fit. Um, or whenever you're sort of having fun with the kids. Um, it, it is our, uh, I suppose, my, my sad duty to kind of convey our condolences to Andy Thompson, who buried his granda this week on Thursday. Um, he'd been unwell for quite a while, and so uh, we want to... Um, mourn with him, and also with William McAleese on the death of his mother, um, who passed away in the early hours of Friday morning. Um, she had been ill for a long time, but uh, whatever way she had reacted to the pain medication, she managed to stay alert a lot more than what anyone ever assumed. I'd, I'd called up last Sunday after the um, morning service, and she then introduced me, and Leslie turned around and goes, oh, you know, he's a good singer. So she turns around in her bed and goes, really? What's your favorite song? Well, okay. Woman, certainly is. Amazing Grace. Oh, sing it. <laughs> so that's what happens when you're on too many drugs. Uh, you make me want to sing, or you ask me to sing. Um, but we, we do want to remember the McAleese family. Um, it is a tough, tough time for them, um, and uh, it's been a long couple of weeks looking after her. They've done amazing, they've been brilliant, they've taken such good care of her, um, but uh, please just remember them. The funeral is in the Free P Church, uh, Grace Free Presbyterian Church in the town, uh, on Tuesday from 12 o'clock, and then uh, the committal afterwards is in Roselawn, but that's just for the family, so if you're free, I'm sure they'd appreciate you being there but just, um, just remember them in prayer. Okay. As we go into chapter 12 of Luke, we need to kind of, I need to give you the context of, of the verses that we're skipping over uh, because it's kind of a reflection on what's been happening. So very quickly, verses 29 to 54 of Luke 11 is a back and forth between Jesus and the religious elite of the time. And it's not a very civilized conversation. It's quite angry. It's quite heated. The Bible text kinds to tone it down a wee bit because of the flurry language, but trust me, it is not civil. I don't know if you've ever been in a restaurant where a fight breaks out between like a husband and wife or girlfriend and boyfriend or, or something like that there, and it's like, I don't want to get involved, but shh, I need to hear what's going on. <laughs> I need to know what's happening there because you can't not look at it. You can't not pay attention to it. You don't want to get dragged into it, but you want to kind of see how it ends. That's kind of what's happening around Jesus and these elite. They're having this ding-dong of a battle, and there's people flocking around them to see what's happening, to see how it's going to be resolved. 
People love scandal. People love drama. That's why soap operas are so popular on TV. It's not because of the high production value or the quality of the actors and actresses. It's because we love the drama. And this dispute between Jesus and the religious leaders is a wee bit like that. It puts a spotlight on Jesus and his followers. It also puts a bullseye on Jesus and his followers. The disagreement, I think, is best summed up in verse 42 up there on the screen. He says, look, you guys, you're getting so fussy about all the little details. You're even tithing the herbs in your kitchen cupboards. And yet you're neglecting the stuff that really matters. You're so keen to give him 10% of everything. You forget the fact that he wants 100% of your heart. And then in verse 45, a scribe stands up and says, dude, that's really offensive. You're kind of dragging us down with those other guys. And Jesus says, I'm only getting started. You want to be offended? Be offended. Woe unto you also. Because instead of your job, instead of doing your job, which is to make it easier for people to connect with God, you've made it harder for people expecting them to jump through all these hoops and to make all this religious facade whenever it's about the heart, it's about people meeting with God. Why have you made it into such a performance and such a show and such a palaver that doesn't make any sense? And let's be honest, churches can be guilty of that even still. That brings us to the last verse of the chapter. Whenever it says that they lay in wait for him, or some translations might say they sought to ensnare him. Translated, they hunted him down. They were lying in wait, like, like hunters going for deer or, or, or something like that there. They're lying in wait, just waiting for the right moment to pull the trigger. It's sinister. And that brings us in into chapter 12. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another. So, okay, there's a bit of hyperbole here going on. Thousands, literally the word in in the Greek translates as tens and tens of thousands. So it's an exaggeration. Uh, You can't move for the people around them. It's just a sea of faces. And so why? Because people love scandal. They love the drama. They want to know how this is going to play out between Jesus, the people's champion, and the religious elite, the people's rulers. How's this turf war going to play out? But Jesus doesn't, isn't focusing on the crowd. He's not focusing on all the drama going on around them. But he begins to say to his disciples, beware of the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the rooftops. Okay. The yeast of the Pharisees, Jesus turns to the disciples and says, Guys, see all the stuff that's going on around you? See all the spotlight that's happening? Don't let this affect you the way it's affected these Pharisees. Don't all let all this focus, the spotlight, hit you the way it's hit the scribes and these elite. That, this is how it started for them. They pushed for religious excellence, which in itself is not a terrible thing. But the problem is now that the real version of them is so far removed from what they like to show people, they're, hypo- they're hypocrites. The message this morning is called Under the Spotlight. And Jesus wants to give people warnings about what happens when you're conscious that people are watching you. Whether it is people uh, in work who are watching you, people in church who are watching you, people who, 
family, whatever it is, whatever way you're under the spotlight, this is what Jesus wants to say to you this morning. Hypocrisy means an actor putting on a show, putting on a performance. It's about pretending to be one thing when you know that you're something else. So many unsaved people will accuse Christians of being hypocrites. I think it's a wee bit harsh because most Christians that I know are genuinely saved and they're genuinely trying. We're just imperfect. We, we try, but we're not always going to get it right. We're going to react in anger because our tempers are have a limit. We're going to get jealous sometimes. We're going to speak and then realize, I spoke in anger there. I spoke in jealousy there. It happens. But that's not to be a hypocrite. Being imperfect is not being a hypocrite. It's being human. Hypocrisy is deliberately letting people see a false picture, knowingly, willingly living out a lie in front of people. It could be in church. It could be at work. Whatever way it applies. Now, the yeast, the, the leaven of this Pharisee is used because as an ingredient that used in baking or beer brewing or whatever it happens to be, the effect is the same. Once you put that ingredient in, you can't take it out again. It has a way of saturating and permeating through in every other ingredient. That's why Paul twice in scripture will say, the church, tell the churches that a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. You put a little bit in, you can't just isolate it. It just impacts everything. So the idea is, is quite simple. A little bit of yeast can come in and affect your whole life. A little bit of hypocrisy can come in and affect your whole life. Um, I, I was writing this on Tuesday and uh, <laughs> I laughed because um, I actually felt like God was having a wind up with me at one point uh, because he says, Jeff, you know, next time someone calls you a big lump, technically he's quoting scripture, so you're all right. Uh, just a little leaven can leaven the whole lump and you're a big lump, Jeff. So I felt... Nice that God has a sense of humor. Yeast can be used as a metaphor just generally throughout the Bible for bad influences in our lives. There is the yeast, the leaven of bad doctrine and how we think about God. That can have a knock-on effect on every part of our lives. There's the leaven of legalism in the book of Galatians and all the rules and regulations kind of puff us up. There's the leaven of uh, who we follow and the witness and the testimony that we have, the reputation that we have. Because these things impact every aspect of our lives. So, but here in Luke, the yeast isn't doctrine or legalism, but it's ego itself. Because yeast in baking in particular, because it's a fungus, it causes fermentation in the dough and causes it to rise. Okay, that's why our bread rises. It's why the, <laughs> the buns rise. It's the yeast in it. And Jesus gives his disciples this warning here of getting a big head. Don't let the spotlight make your head puff up. Don't allow these thousands of people vying for your input, listening to what you want to say, start to sway or impact how you live your life. Because that pressure is really, really powerful. And you can start to pursue it and chase after it, chasing and seeking people's approval, people's admiration and respect, and you become more focused on what they think than what God knows about you. And our ego will lead us down a path of hypocrisy of trying to fit in with the crowd because we want, to, we want the crowd to like us. We wouldn't want them to not like us. We wouldn't want them to think less of us. And so we become a hypocrite. We put on the show because we've got this sense of ego. 
I want to be liked. I want to be well thought of. I want to be high in people's opinions. Now, let's rearrange or reverse engineer these verses. We'll go to verses 4 and 7, then we'll come back. Uh, Because this tells us the cause and the cure of hypocrisy. The word I highlighted there, fear, it's mentioned five times in these couple of verses. Let me explain how ego can lead you to fear. Because so often we think of people who are selfish and, and egotistical as being fearless. It's not really the case. A hypocrite can be more concerned with what people think of them than what God knows about them. So wherever they are, they'll blend in. They'll be that chameleon. They'll fit the mold at work. They'll be a different person at home. They'll be a different person again at church. They'll be a different person in all these different stages of their lives and on and on as many times as it needs to be an actor who is scared to have the real version of them be seen. So what's the cure? What's the cure? The cure is to be more afraid of what God knows than what other people think. He can see through your act even if no one else can. And that should dominate our minds more. We don't stand in front of God with our costumes on and our masks on. He sees us as we truly are. And so we should be thinking more about that than what other people think. We should be thinking more about eternity than right now and here in this moment. Jesus uses the numbers of hairs on our head to reassure us. Now, please, no balding jokes at this point. But they say the average person loses 100,000 hairs a day. I don't think they all grow back for me, but I still am losing about the same amount. Now, here's the thing. That means that the actual numbers on our, of hairs on our head changes every single day. Seven billion people. And those numbers are changing every single day. Every single day. Every single moment, those numbers are changing. Yet God still knows that number. Add in the sparrows, what do we realize? That God cares about the little details. He's not unaware of the little details. He knows these things. He sees and he cares and he notes all the little details in our lives. No aspect of your life is unwatched by God. And that, that's to reassure us. He is there. He sees. He knows the pain. He knows the trials. He knows the issues. He knows that we're imperfect. He knows that we struggle sometimes to get it all right all the time. But it also means he knows whenever we're faking it. Now let's drop back into the first couple of verses. And what do we see then? We see that it doesn't get us anywhere. Pretending doesn't get us anywhere. If nothing can be hidden from God, if he cares about the little details, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, therefore what? Therefore, what do you hope to gain by pretending? You'll maybe get through a difficult moment at school or at work or maybe an awkward conversation or you'll maybe get through a week or you might get through a church service, but you'll not get away with it. Because first of all, God sees the deliberate attempts you're making to pretend and to deceive. Remember, I'm talking about ego here. I'm talking about hypocrisy here. I'm not talking about uh, people who, who are just being human and are trying and are simply imperfect. I'm talking about the people who are deliberately living a double life. We're all inconsistent. 
That's why we live by faith. That's why we live by grace. That's why we need Christ in us every single time. That's why we look to him. That's why we lean on him. That's why we talk about forgiveness and grace and compassion because we need it. But at the same time, God sees those who have the double life. And honestly, while he knows about it, the truth is other people will find out eventually. Be sure your sins will find you out. Now remember the context of this chapter. The spotlight's on Jesus. The spotlight's on uh, the disciples. And so Jesus is reassuring them in verses 8 and 9. He calls them to be salt and light, calls them to be grace and truth. In other words, stick to who you've been called to be. Don't let the pressures of the outside world dictate to you who you should be. Let God be the one who molds you. Let God be the one who shapes you. Dare to be different. Dare to stand out. Dare to be outstanding. Don't dare to think that you can fake it with God. You don't have to be ashamed of who you are in him. You don't have to be ashamed or or, or be something that you're not. Know who you are. Know whose you are. And the truth will be liberating. What he says in verse 10 is really interesting. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit will not be. Now, we've talked about this on a couple of occasions. But let me just sum it up quickly. Remember last week, the enemies of Christ that said, oh, he's doing all this stuff by the power of the devil, by the power of Beelzebub. It shows how hard their hearts were. They could see God working. They could see God moving. And yet they still didn't want to see him for who he really was. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, look, do you really want to be on their side when it comes down to it? Whenever it comes down to actually drawing a line down on who's with me and who's against me, you want to be on that side of the fence? See, the unpardonable sin, I believe, is that rejection of Christ. To have the Holy Spirit show you who he is. You know that he's the Son of God. You know that he's the one who came to save. You know that you need saving. You know that you're imperfect. You know that you've got this kind of duality in your life. And you know that he is there if you call upon his name and you could be saved and to say, I don't want it. No thanks. I'd rather keep on going my own way. I'd rather do it. That, I believe, is a sin that is unforgivable because in committing that sin, you refuse to seek forgiveness. Right? You see, as Christians, any sin can be forgiven as long as we repent. But if we never seek repentance, then how can we know forgiveness? And so, the sin of rejecting salvation, the sin of rejecting that um, grace, the sin of rejecting forgiveness is unforgivable. Jesus said, seek and you'll find. But if you don't seek, you'll not find. The next warning that Jesus gives is not so much about the duality of our lives, but the desires of our lives. In verse 13 to 21, which we'll we'll come to in a minute, he warns them of jealousy. He he tells them a story of a man who tore down his barns and he built bigger ones. And now he goes, I can sit down, I can relax, I can chill out, I can retire early. I can live a life of luxury. Life is for living. Life is for enjoying. Now, this comes out of an interaction with a man from the crowd. He wants Jesus to sort of initiate of his inheritance. Jesus' response is absolutely awesome. He says, I don't care about that stuff. I'm not, I'm not the judge of this. Don't, 
bother me with that. I don't care about, listen, there's, a, there's such an important principle here. Jesus did not come to make bad people into good people. That's not the job. The job that Christ did was to make dead people alive. And the issue then that isn't always, oh, I've got this little issue at home, or I've got this little issue at work, or I've got, the real issue is what have you done with God? What have you done with him? Are you following the will of God in your life? This, in comparison then, is so petty, it's so silly, it's so small, it's ridiculous. Oh, so often, even in churches, we get into little squabbles, we get into little things and niggles and quarrels and to the point where we forget the big picture. I love verse 15. One's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. Oh, that's good. You should underline that in your Bibles. You should put a big exclamation mark beside it. Life isn't about the stuff. And Jesus is saying, like, it's so stupid for you two guys to be focused on how much you can gain financially. Or, or maybe we could add in by getting the holidays or, or changing the car or, or, or all the stuff, all the technology, all the upgrades, all the rest of it. And you neglect your relationship with God in the end. He says, I need my inheritance. No, you don't. You need a spiritual inheritance. He says, no, but I need my money. No, you need to go to heaven. May God deliver us from being so concerned about things that maybe have some importance, but we ignore the things of the utmost importance. Eh? May God give us balance in our perspective. It's possible to be saved and yet still have the wrong values on things because you can have a full bank account and still feel empty, even as a Christian, if your focus is on the wrong things. But praise the Lord, you can have an empty bank account and still live a full life, satisfied by who God is. And walking closely with the Father. First Timothy 6, Paul's telling Timothy what to tell the rich people in the church in Ephesus. And by the way, if you have money in your pocket, if you've got food in your fridge, you are part of the rich of this world. You have a roof over your head, you have health care, you have more wealth than most in our world. And so for the rich in this present age, that's us. Charge them not to be haughty. Tell them don't have an ego nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich, not in money, but in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure, not in the bank, but as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of, what, of that which is truly life. Chase after money, you'll never truly live. See, God isn't interested in how much money you make. He, he sees your life in how much you give. Because he is a God who gives. He wants his children to be people who give as well. Now, before we go on, please understand that saving for the future, making wise investments, that's not what is being, you know, don't get rid of your savings. Don't, get, don't stop putting into your pension. Don't, that's not what Jesus is saying. He calls his people to be wise. Be wise with your money. But what he is not endorsing is putting your trust in those things over him. So let me phrase it like this. If something goes wrong, 
is your reaction, it's okay, I've got savings? Or is it, it's okay, I've got God? That's the difference. Beware of the double life, beware of greedy desires. Jesus is on a roll and he catches the one where many of you are right now and he says, but don't be anxious about living like this. <laughs> don't doubt. Because that's where some of you are, right? You hear that, those kind of verses and you kind of think, well, that sounds really hard. That sounds like too much of a challenge for me. I don't want all that. That's too hard. That's making me a wee bit nervous, Jeff, to be honest. I heard a story about a man named Joe. Joe was a real worrier. And uh, his friends always laughed and joked about how he just always would have found something to worry about. Then one day he comes into the office and he's just whistling and as chill as you like. He says, what is, Joe, what's up with you? He says, well, I've, I've had a brilliant idea. Um, I pay a guy a thousand pounds a day to worry for me. But Joe, how on earth are you going to afford that? A thousand pounds a day. He says, well, see, that's the beauty of this idea. I've got somebody to worry about that now. That's one way of sorting your problems out. I suspect there would be demand for a job like that if we could make it work. Why carry a heavy load whenever you could get someone else to carry it for you? But is that not what the Christian has? Look at the birds. They don't run around the way we do, but God looks after them. He's their creator, but he's not their father. But he's our father. And that makes it so different. Now, he accepts you in as family and because of who you are, that's an important reason to not worry, to not be anxious. You're part of the family of God. Your Father in heaven will give you what you need. I've always loved verse 25. Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubic to his stature? That's about 18 inches. I'd love an extra 18 inches. That would be beautiful. I mean, this is really personal for me, this sermon about talking about balding and uh, shortness, but would it help me grow any taller if I worried more about it? Lord, I pray for those 18 inches. I'm really worried about it. I'm worried about what people are thinking and get really self-conscious. I'm torn up that I can't grow. No. Now, let me just say, being five foot five, it's okay. I got legroom in planes. In fact, I got, I got legroom everywhere. <laughs> it's fine. I am who I am. You are who you are. And that's the point Jesus is making. Is worrying going to change it? So, so why are you doing it? So the first reason is, because of who you are in Christ. The second reason not to worry is because it doesn't change anything. In fact, worrying actually does you more harm. We know that now, medically. People who worry have higher blood pressure and stress has a physical toll on their bodies. We know this now. In fact, somebody once calculated 40% of the things that we worry about will never happen. 30% of the things that we worry about are things that are in the past and we can't actually change. 12% are things that people have criticized us about, so we can't change. 10% um, are things that we worry about in regards to our own health, which last time I checked doesn't actually help because of worrying. Only 8% of the things that we worry about are actually legitimate worries, 8%. So lighten up, worry less, 
because of who you are, a child of the King, family of God. Because of what it does, it doesn't help. It's not going to progress things any further by worrying. It produces nothing but more sickness and more hurt. Verse 31, I love verse 31 because it's the cure. Here's the antidote for you who is worrying so much in this life. If you're a worrier, listen up. But, so we're a contrast, but instead of worrying, instead of doing that, do this. But seek the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. That's the cure for worry. If you don't want to worry, then work. Seek the kingdom of God. Instead of worrying about your kingdom, start working for his kingdom. Instead of sweating your condition, start serving the king. Start getting busy at the things that really matter in life. Find meaning, find purpose, find your anchor in that. Take your focus off your kingdom and your comfort. Put it on his kingdom. Now, so often, too often, we get that reversed. So often we reverse this because we want our comfort, we want to establish our kingdom, and then with whatever's left over, right, well, we'll maybe volunteer at the church or we'll do something. And we kind of hope that God kind of gets thrown in at the end. Let's get the job, let's get the stability, and then we'll serve. <coughs> Jesus says, no, you've got it backwards. My kingdom, my stuff. My glory, my kingdom, my kingdom, my fame, my glory, then leave your stuff to me. I'll sort that out. Give yourself over to me. I'll take care of your stuff. And you know what? If you do that, if that's your number one aim, think I'm working now for God, I'm sold out for him, I'm focusing on what is really important in this life. If he's going to do the rest, that's a good deal. That's a good deal, and that's the cure. That's the antidote to worry. Instead of worrying about your kingdom, seek his kingdom. And all those other things will be added onto. What are those other things? It's not money. It's not holidays. It's not cars. It's not promotion. It's not those things. It's peace. Instead of worrying, and you're chasing after peace, you're chasing after being able to sleep at night, you're chasing after having a guilt-free conscience. Those are the things that can come when you seek the kingdom of God first. I love what one person said, blessed is he who's too busy to worry during the daytime and thus too tired to worry at night. I think that's a great, simple way to look at it. I said to John I was going to do five points this morning. I did three. I think that was probably, it was, I was ambitious to say five. Um, can I just give you the other points just as bullet points? The fourth one was living with disregard. Uh, verses 35, 53, it talks about living a careless life, living only for now and ignoring eternity. We have no guarantees how long we'll have in this life. To get a busy life, to retire, and then to sort of find out what we can do. He could come back tomorrow. He could come back tonight. We do not know, but blessed are those whom he finds busy at the master's work, serving the kingdom, building the kingdom, seeking him, Live, live your life like he could come back at any moment. Blessed, happy is he. Blessed are those people who live like there's no tomorrow, spiritually speaking. And then the last one, spiritual dullness. It's found in the last couple of verses. 
Jesus talks about how if they can read the weather, they can read the cloud, then how come you can know if it's going to be sunny tomorrow if there's going to be a hot wind coming through? If you could read the spiritual forecast like you could read the weather, we'd get on great. Let me flip it around as we finish. He might say to some of the younger ones, how come you know the lyrics to all the pop songs but you don't know the Psalms? How come you know the TikTok dances but you can't lose yourself in moments of worship the way you should? How come you can read the housing markets and the stock markets, but you can't read what God is doing? How come you know all the ins and outs of the political landscape, but you can't read the spiritual landscape? For myself, how come I know all the smallest minute details of footballers, right down to the under-18s in Man United? And I know their ages, I know their nationality, I know what they're getting paid. I know their potential. I know if they're going to be good or if they're not going to be good or what team that they might be better off going to. And how come I can recite that so easily and yet I can't recite Scripture with as much confidence or as much eagerness? How can we get so wrapped up in hobbies and interests while our Bibles collect dust? How can we spend so much time thinking worldly thoughts about the Bible instead of thinking biblically about the world. And then we wonder why the Bible, which is supposed to be sharper than a two-edged sword, feels so dull. Or why we feel like we're not making a difference or we're not making an impact. That's what Jesus is saying. Save, but not sharp, not making an impact, not making a difference. In the face of a hostile crowd, when the spotlight is on, The pressure will be either to change our message and conform because of fear. And we'll look after our ego. We'll look after our sense of being liked. Or we'll maybe just retreat back into the shadows. Christ gave his disciples these five warnings when the spotlight hits. The danger of a double life, the danger of greedy desires, the danger of doubts and disregard and dullness. And I bring them to you this morning not to hurt you, not to kick you when you're down, because I know that people have had a hard week this week. I'm not doing this to kick you when you're down. I'm not doing this to make it harder for you or to put weight on top of you. I am doing this to remind you of the calling that is on your life. God has a plan for you. God has a plan for the trials and plan for the pain and a plan for all the stuff that's happening to us if we are in a place where we can be used by him. Don't waste your pain. Don't waste your sorrow by feeling sorry for yourself and retreating from the spotlight. If Christ is more than Savior, if he is indeed Lord of your life, you are called to reflect that in your life, in every part of your life. And so I do this not to remind you that grace removes from us a standard of holiness. That's like, well, I don't have to be that because I am saved and grace just covers it. What I'm saying is, that grace gives us the freedom to live out holy lives, not because we have to, but because it's a response in worship. The spotlight is on all of us. We can think of maybe people at home, work, school, socially, wherever clubs and societies we're part of. I wonder this week, 
how are you going to react to the spotlight? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I pray that this message will not have felt like a burden, that it will not been, feel like a harshness, but Lord, a reminder to the high calling to which we are called. Lord, that it would thrill us to think that actually you want to do something with us in the spotlight, that we want to shine out for you and stand out for you. But Lord, it requires then decisions to be made, adjustments to be made. Lord, help us to get our eyes off ourselves and other people and to fix our eyes on the things that are above. Lord, it is not easy. The temptation is always to lower our eyes like Peter did when he was walking on the water and to look at the circumstances and to look at the trials and to stop looking at you. Help us not to do that. And Lord, maybe for those who feel that they're sinking a wee bit, Lord, may we reach out to you this morning and feel your hand pull us back up. Lord, I would pray that you would not only just speak and challenge us with this this morning, but Lord, you would transform us. Lord, that the changes that we make this morning would be lasting and that they would be real. And so, Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen. Go and ask the musicians to come up. We're going to sing one more, and then we'll go.